0: Uh huh, no. Uh huh, uh 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 Salt. Uh-huh. New. No. Knife. New. No. Welcome to the Shmuel Tenenhouse podcast. That was me uh, doing my best impression of everybody's Shabbos table, Friday night and Shabbos day. Now, that was a cold opening for a monologue. And... I actually was intending to do the today's entire podcast uh, in the spirit of somebody who washed, made an al Yadayim, and now they're just waiting for Hamaitzi. I was going to do a full half hour like that, but I couldn't figure out enough incantations to do it, even though uh, I'm sure some of you would have picked up on the humor. Uh, th- this is something very unique. That we have as from Jewish people. We have a language that nobody else speaks. It's not Yiddish. It's not Hebrew. It's uh aha, nu, aha, nu. The amazing thing is that, uh, as you know how overly social I am, when we're at a Shabbos table, my favorite moment is just that time when nobody can talk. And everybody's just sitting at the table and looking at each other and quiet. There's nothing offensive being said Uh, nobody's asked me to pass anything to them, nobody's sharing any story about their kid that I'm not interested in, and so I just, I I think that we ought to extend it. If we're up to me in my home, I would extend that for 10, 15 minutes, that little quiet period, and then, which by the way, you can really learn about a person uh, and their personality during that time, and then we'd proceed on to the meal for a couple of minutes and move on to the next thing. Which leads me right into the next question. This is a an ethical question. And I don't want to pass any judgment, but I want to get your op- opinion on this matter. So, and like I've done in the past, this is a, a shtickle of a dark place and may trigger some people. At a Shabbos table, what are your thoughts on stockpiling? And If you're not familiar with it, stockpiling is, when you sit down, let's say by the Hamaitzi time, before anybody started eating, there's a group of people at the table who are visionaries. They kind of see ahead. And what they're looking at is, they're looking at a small thing of guacamole going, that's a small bowl of guacamole. There's 15 of us at the table. I better scoop out a couple of spoons of this onto my plate so I get a head start. And then they'll do the same thing with the eggplant, and the tomato dip, and the basil dip, and whatever dips there are on the table. So, again, in yeshiva I get it, because, uh, you know, I guess one of the ways to, to make the food more appealing is to say, look, it's so good, we're, we're even putting the food on our plate before the meal even starts. So it's more like a psychological thing. But by a Shabbos table, again, look around next time, and the people who are planning ahead are the people putting stuff on their on their plate, so I'm not one to do that because I don't think I'm that organized. But uh, I will say, some if if you're a non-stockpiler, some of the things you can do is once you're able to talk, you can tell the person who was stockpiling, you can say, "Hey, uh, I noticed you were uh, piling on some of those salads before." We all started, very clever of you, but I think you missed two dishes on the table. Would you like me to pass them to you? The next thing is you can say, wow, my plate is completely empty, but your plate already looks like a risk board. There's a little green here. There's a little red. There's a little yellow. Very cool. Uh, Another thing is uh, if you really want to be obnoxious, what you can do is just Uh, pass along that person's plate as if it was a serving platter. And when they say, wait a second, uh, excuse me, that's my plate, you can say, well, it was piled up so high and it was heaping that I had just assumed that it was the plate for the table. At this point, it would probably be a good time for me to share a very clever hack. Again, this is just my own opinion, and I'm saying, hey, it's very clever. What you do is, I have challenges by a meal where I will finish a meal, uh, overeat, and then when the dessert comes, I will then, you know, continue to overeat on the dessert, and that leaves me in a bad situation after the meal. I'm looking for the Pepto, and all the other stuff, I have to take, you know, maybe a seven or eight-mile walk just to, to be able to lay down and not feel like the food is, you know, slowly rising out of my throat, so... What I've done is instead of waiting for the meal to end and then just hitting dessert and you know being in a, in a very tough uh, predicament, I now only eat 30% of the meal. When I'm 30% full, I then move on to dessert because now I have a big wide 70% availability right now in my stomach lot to make things happen. So what I'll do is I will just jump to dessert while everybody's still having their meal. And when dessert actually is served, like five hours later, because people are talking about God knows what at their Shabbos table, what I'll then do is I will then begin with my second dessert. So some people are eating their first dessert, I am going already the second dessert. Now I wanted to just share two stories that have nothing to do with anything. And perhaps won't even enhance the quality of your life. The first thing is the gray hat story. So this was when I was in Yeshiva in Israel, and a roommate of mine, the first week he comes to Yeshiva, maybe the second day he was there, first of all, he shows up with a gray hat. And his excuse for that is because he is colorblind. Okay. The next thing is, Chasidis, like the second day that he's there, He's not in his bed. So the mashpia is looking for him. He can't find him. And he comes to me and I'm in the middle of davening. And he says, where is so-and-so? Now, I don't know what to say because there's only so many aha uh, uh-huh news I can do to aha uh-huh new my way out of the situation. So what I did was I pointed to my hat. And so the mashpia goes, oh, he went to go get a new hat. And I nodded, aha. Uh-huh. So he smiled. Now, of course, my friend, was not going to get a new hat but Friday night if he shows up now to Zal and he's not wearing a new hat and he still got old gray beard on his head what's going to be so what we had to do is just say hey get a hat source another black hat so he can come so the story ends up checking out this reminded me of another story at some point in time in my life I was single and I had friends who were single. A very well-respected mashpia in Lubavitch calls me about a reference, a shidduch reference, about a friend of mine. And he really cuts to the chase. He says, does this guy have a beard? And I say, you know, this guy, you know, was, uh, didn't have a long beard. He would certainly trim it every moment when he was awake. And he had a very, very smooth cheek on, on both sides. Both cheeks were smooth. Uh, so I tell uh, the guy, yeah, he's got he's got a beard because I assume it's a mashpia. I say, yeah, it's a beard. This, guy's, this guy can walk without tripping over his beard. That's how big his beard is. He's walking and he's cleaning the streets as he's walking and he's collecting items in his beard. So the mashpia tells me, well, actually, my daughter is looking for somebody without a beard. This, by the way, was before beards were cool. So, and people wanted somebody without a beard, even though today it's almost unheard of for a guy not to have a beard. So he says, yeah, I'm actually, my daughter is looking for somebody without a beard. I was like, beard? What beard? That beard I was just telling you about? I think, I mean, that was before he went through chemo, but now he's got no hair in his whole body. That's how little of a beard he has. He doesn't have a beard on his head under his arms, there's nothing, there's not a hair left on this kid's body. It is a smooth, his face, if you look at it right away, looks like a baby's behind. That is how smooth this is. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Shalach Manas, which, not to be a naysayer, but this year, the Shalach Manas were such a low caliber in terms of you know, wine and baked goods and other things that I track in my own personal shalachmanis Excel tracker, because you always want to know, you know, who gave you what, so you can follow up in the middle of the year, or you know who to give next year and who to avoid next year. And it was weak to the point where I saw that next year, the FDIC has ensured that they will backstop all shalachmanis that are not up to par. Uh, they will just put in a bottle of wine or something else just to get your Shalach where it needs to be because there could be a contagion effect where the Shalach are not good, then there's no Seder, then there's no shfuas, and the whole Yiddish is dead, so the FDIC is ste- stepping in, uh, which kind of reminds me a little bit about the, the bank uh, collapses that are happening, which when you don't have any money in the bank, you have nothing to worry about, but I've been going to banks now and saying, hey— there is a contagion now in the banks. Can I take this little bowl of lollipops that you have for my kids? Because at some point in time, the Feds are going to come here and take everything away. Let me just take this candy, please. Thank you. So, I will say my favorite part of Purim is when you have a list of Shahmanas of people you need to get out to, give out to, and then you're walking in the parking lot somewhere. It could be by a school. It could be by a shul. They could be in in, in a regular strip shopping center. And you make eye contact with somebody who's not on your Shalach list, but your arms are laden with Shalach The problem is that there's a very awkward thing going on because on the one hand, you're carrying nine Shalach in your hand. On the other hand, this guy's not on your Shalach list. So what you try to do is you try to avoid eye contact and you say, "Eh, you don't really look at him. But where it gets really good is if that person you're on his list. So he says, "Oh my gosh, I'm so glad I bumped into you. We have Shahmanas for you." And he gives you the Shahmanas. Now, when you're in that situation, never cave. Don't he's not on the list, you don't give him. You just continue going on and that is a win because you did not have to exchange anything. You just got his Shalach manas. The hardest part for me with Shalach Manas, to be honest, is I love baked goods. Everybody knows. I've talked about this before. I'm a Mazinus influencer. And what, what that entails is when the Shalach Manas comes in, I, I tear it up very quickly to see what, what we have in the Mazinus the category. The problem is with baked goods is unless they're, it's packaged from a store, it's going to show up in a Ziploc bag or even worse in saran wrap. Or Shalom, even it could be wrapped in tinfoil, which who puts Mazinus in a tinfoil? Anyways. So the problem is, a lot of times you'll get Shalom and there'll be a baked good in a Ziploc bag, but you don't really know how from that family is. So you're like, should now I have my 19th hamantash or maybe I got to do some due diligence on this family because you really don't know if their kashras is up to par so now you have to start making reference calls uh, and you're like calling kids parents that are in your child's school and you're calling for references and you're blank hey do you know the uh shmahachers uh what, what do they have do they have two sinks one sink the chal Viseron. what do you think if the people don't even know, and they're like, "Hey, there's kind of a, a new family. We really don't know their hashgacha standards, so I can't really tell you if you can proceed to, you know, take in that that or not." So then, essentially, what you got to do is you got to do a stakeout outside of their house, and just to make sure that you know they're dressed with with yuntif clothing on yuntif and shabbos clothing on shabbos, and you know this could take months and months until you, you develop a good kosher profile on a family. And meanwhile, the samatash is getting staler and staler as the months go on. It's really not worth it, but you put in so much effort that you want to take it. I alluded to the fact before that there was very little wine. I don't know. Like I said before, this was a very weak shalach The recession was evident. Inflation on food was very evident. And... uh, what I, I one guy gave me literally just a box of raisins, which I've railed about this last year, but just the raisins, not even a different bracha. I asked him what bracha it is, and he said, uh, make a eights on the raisins and a shahakal on the cardboard of the box. So, this is a people are definitely hurting this year, and or I just need wealthier friends because the ones that we were doing exchanges with. We're not, we're not re- really not contributing a lot to my family's bottom line. Uh, in fact, one of my wealthier friends gave me a $2 lottery ticket for Shalach Manas. The, the, the funny part is I actually won $150 million. I don't have the heart to tell him. He doesn't listen to this podcast. There's no way he's going to find out too. But now with $150 million in a bank that's about to get taken over by the, the feds, do I continue doing this podcast just because it's a hobby and it's a thing that I love to do or to be like, hey, I have $150 for my $2 lottery ticket which I won during perm or not. Uh, In terms just about the economy, I want to say that another sign that the economy is really not humming along the way we need it to hum along is Schettelmachers I've seen on Insta, they are now making available that you could pay them with mileage because people don't have cash now, but they do have mileage sitting in their accounts. So this one Schettelmacher put up, she will do a wash set is now 4,000 JetBlue points. I mean, a Schettelmacher, you have to be like maybe mosaic and uh, maybe a, a, not 100,000. I think it's a mil, actually a million points. I'm not even sure. I think it's a million now. Yeah, six zeros. So uh, kudos to them and kudos to the people who still have some form of currency that is virtual that they could continue doing their shaito business. Uh, now, I do have a halachic question here, because I know sometimes we discuss Jewish law, which is a very complex topic. There are books and books uh, written on Jewish law. And on those books, people have written more books. So this involves a minion, a quorum of 10 men in shul. The question is, halachically: for somebody to fulfill the obligation of going to shul, do you need to be annoyed while you're there by 10 people? Or is a rive minion six people to piss you off while you're in Shul, enough to fulfill the obligation of going to Shul? Now, of course, this question is much more common these days as more people have moved to Florida. There's more people in Shul, more people that can annoy you while you're there. The other question is maybe you just need three people, which is like a Musliman. I asked this question to my uncle who's a scholar who also goes on a treadmill and he told me a deeper level of this question is because a minion have to be bar mitzvah. But somebody in shul could be under a mitzvah and still annoy you. One thing which I am actually very encouraged of and this was lots of communities coming together and issuing this halachic Ruling and stance is uh, everybody knows uh, the one of the worst people that you can find in a shul. Not that they're bad people inherently; it's just that they're doing inappropriate things. Is and this is on the very, very low, low down on the offenses you can commit in a shul. And this is the guy who corrects the Baal Kaira while he's laning, but the guy who's doing the correcting is actually wrong. So the guy will be like, okay, and the guy will yell out, and everybody will look at him and go, sorry, sorry, just made a mistake. That's strike one. If that happens a second time, uh, what all rabbis agree on, which is kind of amazing, uh, orthodox, conservative, reform. It's amazing that they agree on something. So they said, if a guy does this a second time in shul the same week, everybody who's in attendance at shul has permission and furthermore, the obligation to kick the guy in the shins outside in the parking lot. Uh, and it could be either his right leg or his right shin, sorry, I should say shin because it has to be a designated area, or his left shin. And I do actually love hanging out and the idea that we can have some poor guy who studied 20 hours to prepare for Korea, and now he's got to do it without the vowels, without the trup. and then you have a bunch of wise guys All with Hamashim who are looking inside trying to catch the person for making a mistake. It is kind of like the Hunger Games, which I have not watched or I have not read, but I assume that is what's going on in some way or another in the Hunger Games. And as you know, since I am a podcaster within the Jewish community, some people would say, he's even a scholar. And he is an expert in relationships. I definitely would not say it. Our marriage therapist would laugh if I would say something like that. Uh, But some people, so I do get questions a lot. And it's it's part of my responsibility to answer these questions. So uh, a few uh, wives have written to me asking, you know, sometimes their spouses, their husbands, seem like very frustrated when they're coming home after a long day of work? Or like, what is the best way for to get a husband to be present or engaged when he comes home from work? So I will tell you the trick and the secret. What you have to do as the wife, wives, are you listening? What you have to do is while your husband is walking from the car to the house, the front door of your house, you got to assign him a task right away before he has an opportunity to put down his bag or to get something to eat or even to check his phone. And the reason for that is, is because husbands do not always feel appreciated for their contribution to the household. The one way that you can demonstrate that you appreciate this man after a hard day of work is he's coming home and you say, hey, honey, I've been waiting. I have a task for you to do. Now, if you really want to show your love and affection for your spouse and take it to the next level, is what you do is you assign a back-to-back task. So as your husband is completing the first task, and he's definitely muttering under his breath in appreciation for the fact that he just got home and now he has an opportunity to be present and engaged with the the tasks of the household. As he's finishing that, you boom, hit him with a second task because what you're showing is, I believe in you. I trust you. That's why you're engaged here. You did such a fantastic job on this first task and you exceeded my expectations, and beyond, therefore, you will get another task. Some people have had the genius idea of asking my wife, that is me, Shmol the Shmol podcast, if she listens to the Schmoltenels podcast. Now, if you listen to the Shmol podcast, you know that that is a terrible thing to do because so many jokes are about my marriage and our relationship. Now, in fact, there's actually a podcaster's code. And that is, when a person has a podcast and he's talking about different things that are happening in his life, what you wanna do is you wanna say, I'm not gonna go over to all the people that he's calling out in his podcast and ask him, do you listen to the podcast? Now, what's happening is, Because people are asking my wife about the podcast, at some point, she has told me a few times that she wants to start listening. And I said, honey, because my wife is so sweet, like honey, please, let's wait until after episode 50. So this is episode 34. So, Hevra, we have 16 more episodes to talk relationship and stuff, because afterwards, My wife will start listening to the podcast and I may have to take a different approach or find different topics uh, to, uh, to talk about. Now, the last thing I really want to get into is something that has been puzzling me and I'm surprised that this is not a bigger scandal than it already is in my head. What happened to hazelnut-flavored coffee? Here's what I mean. Some of you are already screaming, and I hear it. I hear you obnoxious people who are who are multitasking, and you hop onto one thing, and you're arguing with me. And by the way, somebody else told me that she listens to my podcast while she's working as background. So... All I want to say is I want to acknowledge that there are some people such as myself who listen to podcasts while they work, and some of you guys are listening to podcasts right now doing actual work. If you are doing some data entry, what I want to remind you of is control C and then control Z. And then did you, did you put it in the box? you want to do control V? You want to take it out? You just want to pop it back in. You're just going to go back and forth from screen to screen. You don't even have two screens. You have one screen. In any case, so some people are going to say, what, hazelnut, when I go to the bakery or when I go to 7-Eleven, they still have one pot of hazelnut. No. That's like saying, you know, you can still find a VHS, you know, cassette in somebody's house. For a while, and I think this was the late 80s or the early 90s, I think somebody discovered the hazelnut flavor. And then it became ubiquitous. Everything was hazelnut coffee. Taster's choice, I think it was taster's choice, which by the way, if you ask people who can taste things, this is their choice, this coffee. They had a hazelnut flavor with a blue cover. That was everywhere. I mean, who, was, who, who would want to drink plain coffee like just with a plain coffee flavor? It was all about the hazelnut. Are you kidding me? It smells so good and delicious. Like you just literally want to eat your coffee. You'd be like, hey, this is a, a hot cup. Can you also bring me a fork and a knife because I'll literally want to eat the coffee as well. Nowadays, mysteriously, hazelnut is no longer in vogue. It's almost not even an option. I haven't seen instant hazelnut coffee in anybody's house, possibly because I haven't been invited anywhere, but also possibly because there's stuff going on that we don't know. Is it the deep state that is taking control over the hazelnut coffee? It, it, or have have aliens from balloons come and taken, taken away the hazelnut coffee? Was it just a, a fad that went away? Or did hazelnut coffee as a flavor just become so cocky and haughty that they were finally introducing a flavor into coffee that people just at some point in time got fed up and were like, you know what? You were the cool guy. You were the cool coffee kid. But now, like, we just want to go to Starbucks. And by the way, the more I think of it, I'm wondering if Starbucks has to do with all of this. So if you're listening to this podcast, please let me know what your thoughts are on Hazelnut. And if you know anything about the vanishing of hazelnut from every simcha and every wedding, even the funerals were serving hazelnut coffee. I remember, I mean, it was a little sacrilege. They were actually schlepping a coffin and on the coffin, they had hazelnut coffee. They had an instant and they also had um, brood in like one of those little brood flasks. And now you won't, you won't even see it at at anywhere.